Welcome to From What If to What Next. I'm your host and fellow traveller, Rob Hopkins. This podcast started about a year ago as my lockdown project and has really taken on a life of its own since. It's our fortnightly deep dive into the imagination. It's power, it's beauty, it's sheer exhilaration. As the late David Fleming wrote in his book Lean Logic, if the mature market economy is to have a sequel, it will be the work, substantially, of imagination. Our mission here at this podcast is to hold the space for that imagination to breathe, something all too rare in our busy, busy lives. It's like an hour at the imagination spa. So pick up your fluffy towels and let's begin. Actually, before we do, I must just mention that this podcast is only able to happen because of the kind and beautiful people who subscribe at patreon.com slash from what if to what next. If you enjoy our conversation today, please do consider it. You get a podcast every two weeks before everyone else, plus bonus bits too, and it makes such a difference. Thank you. As regular listeners will know, Every episode of this podcast begins with our time machine exercise, where I ask my guests to step into my time machine and join me in travelling to 2030. We do it every episode. Indeed, we'll do it in a moment. And it's often the highlight of each episode, for me at least. It's also an exercise I do in talks and in workshops. I've done it with small groups and with 1,500 people in a hall in Belgium. It's a powerful thing to do. As you'll have seen, we've used sections of the time travelling we do here for our series of short A Day in 2030 animations and also for the beautiful 2030 compilations made by our producer Ben Adicott. Stepping into the future, becoming familiar with it, taking a walk in it is such a powerful thing to do. The great Donella Meadows once wrote, How did we arrive at a culture that constantly, almost automatically, ridicules visionaries? Whose idea of reality forces us to be realistic? When were we taught, and by whom, to suppress our visions? So today, we'll be stopping to look more closely at the idea of allowing our imaginations to time travel and asking, what if we mastered the art of time travel? I'm joined by two fabulous guests. Anab Jain imagines and builds future worlds we can experience in the present moment. By creating new ways of seeing, being and acting, she inspires and challenges us to look critically at the decisions and choices we make today. A designer, filmmaker and futurist, she co-founded the vanguard laboratory design and film studio Superflux with John Ardern to pass uncertainties around our shared futures. From climate change to growing inequality to the emergence of artificial intelligence and the future of work, Superflux explores some of the biggest challenges of our times and investigate the potential and unintended consequences of these challenges. She's also professor and programme leader at Studio Design Investigations, University of Applied Arts, Vienna, and her work has won many awards. Johanna Strippel is an associate professor in political science at Lund University in Sweden. His research has traced the governance of climate change through a range of sites from the UN to the everyday, from the economy, the urban, the low-carbon self. He's edited Governing the Climate, New Approaches to Rationality, Power and Politics and Towards a Cultural Politics of Climate Change, both at Cambridge University Press. In the last years, he's worked on a set of initiatives that through experimentation, narrow and speculative design unlock imagination and portray the possibilities of meaningful life in a fossil-free future. 
Examples of these are the Low Carbon Mobile Laboratory, a tourist guide to a fictional decarbonised European city, the Carbon Ruins exhibition, Memories of the Transition, a sound walk set in Malmo, and a climate fiction writing contest. Wow, welcome. Both of you are very welcome to From What If to What Next. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. So, appropriately, we're going to start with a spot of time travel. I'm going to ask you, if I may, to both close your eyes and to imagine that you're travelling through time to 2030. To a 2030 that's not a paradise, but that is the result of our having spent the last nine years doing everything we could possibly do. And the 2030 you emerge into is a radically low-carbon society, more delicious, just, equal, fair, beautiful than the 2021 we left behind. It's also a future in which we have mastered the art of time travel, as in the practice of really allowing ourselves to imagine the future in a positive and hopeful way. And that's now something that runs through our culture, through fiction, through art, media, TV, the stories we tell each other. We look back on the pessimism of the early 2020s with bemusement. Active visioning of the future is now taught in school and is the first point of call in any policy making. It's also central to our lives in many other ways. I'd like to invite you to share with us how you see that world, how you experience what it looks like to you and what it feels like to you. Anna, would you like to start us off? Sure. I'm exhausted, but so, so happy where I am today. You know, the, 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 the kind of last fumes or last sort of bits of the revolution are still weighing on us. We, we can all still remember the time when selfish politicians were making policies for like short-term projects. And here we are today to have Farah Khan as a prime minister, to have a woman of an ethnic minority leading the government, leading us, into a net zero future is is actually, I couldn't have imagined this to even be possible in my own lifetime. Today, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go to this kind of, you know, uh, a shared co-working space, farm, you know, whatever you might call it. So a lot of us have started working on generating a, a kind of a forest farm near our neighborhood. And believe it or not, this is one of hundreds of forest farms now growing and thriving across the UK. You wouldn't believe that trees grow fast. It's, it's a myth that trees take a long time to grow. If you'd grow trees with the kind of rigor and ingenuity that so many indigenous communities around the world have applied, we can start to have thriving forest farms in and around where we live, where we live with different species. We are giving back to the planet instead of just taking. We have established ecological reciprocity. And um, I am beyond kind of happy to see this path we are on. And I really hope that we can leave for our children and grandchildren a world that is still living within the planetary boundaries of what's possible, but is thriving, is more than human, and, and celebrating ecological reciprocity. Thank you, Anna. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, Johannes? 
Yeah, so looking back at the 20s, the key development for me was the record. In the 20s, there was so much talk about emissions. It was a thousand tons there and a thousand tons there. But there was no hard data covering what you actually consume. There were just those estimates. So in social movements, I began to form a vision. What if we could build a database that held details on every last product manufactured all over the world and get people to actually use it? We call it the record. Now it's an amazing database of the emissions caused by different products, services, processes, infrastructures, even experiences. The record became a tool for assigning climate budgets from the individual to the firm, from the municipality to your favorite football club. It became the basis for creating new currencies and new institutions that you are now all familiar with emerged to grant funding to those who actually reduced emissions. I live in Malmö, in the Wood City District, just at the new streetcar station. My wooden high-rise neighborhood was the biggest one in all of Sweden five years ago. The buildings are 25 stories high and 5,000 people call them their home. Thank God the city of Malmö scrapped the plans to build villas on the wetlands behind our district. The wetlands have now been preserved and expanded and are full of birds and insects. I love canoeing there with my kids. Here in Malmö, the imprint of the record is everywhere. On my way to work, I pass the resource exchange, the hub of the circular economy. They trade in shares of everything from copper wiring to household waste. They even speculate in junk options. Further down the road is the Wheel of Fortune, the huge recycling plant where products are repurchased, disassembled and sold for parts. I work at Försäkringskassan, the Swedish social insurance agency. My first assignments in the 2020s was inspecting long-term health benefits recipients. A lot of people came there with climate anxiety-related issues. That work was awful. Day after day, having to be suspicious whether their ideas of the future, their lack of meaning in life created anxiety of the sort that qualified them for social insurance benefits. Recently, the government introduced the citizen credit. So most of us who now work with benefits administration might lose our jobs. If you come to Malmö, I'll bring you to my favorite restaurant. Slacktuset, the slaughterhouse. Do you remember those craft beer pubs that were everywhere 10 years ago? The slaughterhouse is similar. Everything is produced and sold on site. Meat and milk are brewed in large tanks alongside craft beers. You must try the famous milk beer. The slaughterhouse was one of the first one in Malmö. But nowadays, the small-scale bioreactor restaurants are everywhere. Thank you. Wow. Thank you both so much. That was beautiful. And uh, and so I'd like I'd like to start by asking you both why for you in the work that you do, inviting people to step into the future works. What is it that happens when we do that? Uh, Anab, what's your what's your sense of that? I think we are as biological beings 
we have found in our work that actually when an idea about the future is presented as, as a document or as a slide, people are often unable to position themselves in that world. And there is something uh, in cognitive science which is known as this kind of temporal myopia, where you tend to think of something that's going to happen in the future as happening to somebody else. But when you are able to imagine and enable people to physically or kind of in some experiential form step into that world, it calls upon our embodied imagination to start viscerally thinking about this possible world as something we could find ourselves living in. So in that sense, I draw inspiration from the works of people like Ursula Le Guin, who talks about imagination the ability and willingness to imagine alternatives to reality as we know it is always, I think, the first step towards making different and better realities possible. Mm. Thank you. Johannes? When I came to the climate field, I mean, it was a field that was overburdened with visions of the future. It was visions by cities, there were scenarios by climate modelers, there were roadmaps. So the visions and all the talk about the future, it was like the climate future were colonized, but there were no one living there. So in the sense, the stories that we told about a decarbonized society were really empty. It was really poor stories. It was stories that didn't meet us where we are now. It wasn't at that time possible to be inside those worlds. It wasn't possible to inhabit them. They felt abstract. And I think that alienated people a lot. So the kind of work that I've been doing has been to so to re-alienate people, to have them to find their way, telling their stories and see themselves on the inside of those futures, to inhabit them, live them, add to them. I've been trying to just to not provide them with everything, just the raw materials, some basic conditions for them then to imagine their place and not to have a fully fleshed scene for them. And could you give us some examples of how you use time travel in your work how have you seen it to be effective and when do you use it so for the students when we use the carbon ruins exhibition we as you do tell them to close their eyes we talk them through things that might have happened in the in years from now to then and have them to imagine how things smell where they are what they hear trying to open up their senses to have them to talk about a particular place the carbon ruins works with objects so in the exhibition, everything starts with a particular materiality of the object. And if I bring the object to the classroom, a bonus card, a steel bottle, some pieces of Lego, that's such easy, the tactile things, changes how people then understand these as things now in a museum in the future. So it's, it's very simple things that it's a bodily experience. So when you are there with the object and you feel that quite a strong sensation for them. I mean, they play with Lego, but I tell them this is fossil Lego. It, it makes something to them. Anup, could you give us a sense of how you use it in the work that you do? Sure. Um, so uh, quite often um, we create quite in-depth installations, and sometimes we create simply artifacts from the future. This is known as diegetic prototyping, where you create an, a, a kind of technological or otherwise artifact and situated in a fictional future. And so we then invite audiences either 
to engage with these objects or to step into an apartment of the future. We often have also done performance-based piece where we pretend to be organizations or companies from the future and say I, I'm an investment company, for instance, and I've created this new genetic calculator and you give me a saliva sample and my beautiful kind of clever machine will tell you what is the value of your genetic data on this new stock market. And those kind of really kind of mixing objects, story, fiction, myth, performance together. It was incredible. So for instance, with this genetic calculator, almost 300 bankers gave us the saliva samples without raising an eyebrow because they wanted to find out what was the value of their genetic data on this fictional stock market. If we would have presented the idea in a slide deck saying, you know what, in the future, value will not be just measured by what money you have or what wealth you have, but by your genetic data. People would have gone like, go away, you know, stop wasting our time. And yet here we were getting investment offers from banks and organizations because this seemed like such an exciting startup idea. So I think that's what this kind of, situating yourself into a future quite literally does. It, it kind of brings what is seemingly impossible into the cone of vision. And I think that's really important because whatever we imagine, the future will be something different than that. It'll be unexpected. And so I think this sort of work can help us open ourselves up to these possibilities. I wonder in, in, in the work that you do, how you find the balance between using your time travel to take people to positive scenarios or apocalyptic, awful ones. Does those, does the, if you, if you use apocalyptic scenarios, does it disempower people and throw them into despair? Or is there something to be gained from doing both, do you think, Anab? Um, it's a really good question. Um no, quite often we try and, uh, and and work in the space in between the utopia and the dystopia, the positive and negative, because there are no utopias. There's always, there will be winners and losers, unfortunately. It's just how do we ensure a bigger number of winners and how do we ensure a more collective sense of equity? So we try and create worlds where there are tensions, where there are conflicts, but where you can start to see beacons of hope. And I have to admit that in the initially, in early days of our work, we often told more cautionary tales because we were trying to use them as warnings of what we should avoid, whether it comes to technological sort of ideas around algorithmic governance or you know, synthetic biology. But it feels increasingly in the last three, four years like we are living inside a kind of dystopian science fiction novel. And it feels like uh, increasingly working with how we can enable active hope feels really important. So we are swaying towards presenting some stark realities, but finding ways to chart paths of hope. Mm, thank you. Beautiful. Johannes, what's, what's your sense of that, of that balance? We have often assumed a future starting point where we look backwards. And of course, that's a quite useful thing because you can talk about things that were really tough along the way. Since you are already there and you, you survived and you are healthy and we assure them that Sweden is still a democracy and some of those basic characteristics of the world. So then they can look back on the stuff that they had to leave behind 
They can talk about the things that were really tough, some years of rationing, for example. Those things could be kept about when you look back at the things that were tough when when you are through them. I mean, then you are, it's a very different point than when you look ahead towards towards uh, those hard years. Or, uh, so, so, yeah, I think we have been quite insistent that the world's, I mean, I'm a political scientist after all, so politics and conflicts and contestations are part of all those worlds, even though we start with a, with a kind of a normative ambition that we are in a particular future that has some particular characteristics in terms of like democracy and new fossils and things. But of course, getting there was never hard or easy and we had to leave some things behind. And it's about coming to terms with that and how we felt about that and how we then, what would we do instead? Uh, Those questions. I was really fascinated recently reading about how during the Japanese process they call future design, where some people in a meeting where people are thinking about the future of their community put on a green robe and speak from 70 years in the future, how the people who play that role subsequently research shows become more sustainable in their behaviour and their thinking as a result. So how does this work, this sort of time travel work, and, and in what ways can time travel to a future that emerged from us doing everything we possibly could change how we behave uh, in the here and now? I once did interviews with uh, a range of stakeholders and research projects. I went through Brussels and business and and media, and it was about future climate change policy. And that was in the time where everybody were negotiating the Kyoto Protocol and everything that people could think of was within the realms of Kyoto. So this was a few years before the collapse in Copenhagen, and nobody could think about anything else than a second Kyoto Protocol. Certainly not any of the administrators, bureaucracies, um, also scientists. Everybody was just into this kind of work. The only ones that were good at thinking outside the books were journalists. I think they were the best interviews. They had some much more flexible mind, but the Brussels bureaucrats were unable to think outside that. A few years later, it all crashed in Copenhagen, and we got a completely different process after that, leading up to later on the Paris Paris Agreement. And it... Looking back, it was amazing how difficult for these different kinds of groups to situate themselves and what if climate policy would not follow this. People were so normatively insistent that this were the good things that must happen. And that thing that you really wanted a world future treaty to look in a particular way was became then the idea that it has then to be because it must be. And we were all, particularly European policymakers, we were really ill-prepared then for the years after the crash in Copenhagen. And the leadership that was lost in that moment has never never really come back on. So from a European horizon, I think it, we would have been in a much better position if we had been much more open to different kinds of climate futures, climate policy futures emerging. It's an interesting question is why people working professionally seem to be the ones who have most difficult to manage in different futures, while the ones who are like reporting or journalists, and even some, I think it was a corporate storyteller or something like that that we interviewed. He could ease it, and we told him, now you're in this world, and he just started to get away within it. He understood what that meant and started to build his world within that. Anna, what's your sense of that? How have you seen that process of stepping into the future uh, change people and how they behave in the world today? I think we often think about not so much necessarily as time travel or as a future, but other realities, other worlds, other possibilities. You know, some of them may be within the present, but on the the peripheries of what we understand to be consensus reality. And sometimes it may be further out in the future. We 
cannot measure quite directly and immediately how people feel after they've experienced such a or such a kind of alternate reality it's 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 not something that you can kind of immediately measure but what we have seen from reactions and insights and conversations with people afterwards is that it certainly catalyzes their imagination to start thinking of things they might not have considered otherwise so in a way what you are doing is alongside constantly being told that you need to be more climate aware or you need to start doing things to be more sustainable you are actually becoming more self aware these kinds of experiences of seeing alternate worlds makes you more self aware of what's around you and what's likely to come or what could be the possible future so that the actions you're going to you're being asked to take or the decisions you're asked to make will be more informed so in a way there are two pieces there's a piece where you are doing action oriented work to create a better future and then there is this aspect of critical thinking and imagination that helps you reach towards that action oriented work in a much more inspired motivated and self aware way and i think that's where our work lies so our theory of change is that those people who can experience multiple possible futures become more self aware to act upon it today i use this sort of time travel thing a lot in talks and workshops as i mentioned at the beginning and there's something that happens when we step forward into say 2030 that we often connect into what it is that brings us contentment rather than short-term pleasure you know when you ask people to travel forward to a 2030 that's the result of us doing everything they possibly could it tends to be a future that's about contentment rather than short-term pleasure and while in the very short term at the moment we're all led to believe that we massively disagree on so many things and everything everything becomes more and more polarized what i find often is that when we move the time forward a little bit we find so much more that we have in common and so much more that we agree with and perhaps if we start with time travel and then work backwards we might find more common ground than we might have thought we had exactly yeah you're absolutely absolutely right a lot of those kind of travels or the kind of stepping into choices as i might think of different future choices we helps us to come back into the present more informed and i think that's also what a lot of science fiction writers who are read about say that you know even though they create quite often fantastical worlds they are actually creating commentary about our present world and so any mechanism that helps us to reduce the temporal myopia or kind of pre-experience the future so that in some ways that pre-experienced future becomes a memory so that now i'm thinking about it as my own kind of memory that that i think cognitively plays a really vital role in how we go about our world and our lives thank you thank you johannes what's your sense of of the potential to find more common ground with people if we push the timeline out a little bit yeah i think in in many of the projects that i worked has had a strong participatory quality so people have come there we call it like collaborative future making so people come and add to the future and well when we did the the tourist guide to fictional european city the book is called rough planet notre dame it was co-written with 2030 researchers who came together in 
they only had to write a very particular bit. It could be what's on the menu at a particular restaurant. Where do you find meat on Mondays in the city? What's on in the historical museum, for example? So it's also when people become engaged and when, when they don't have to imagine the whole world, when they can just do some bits and when they can collaborate on, on a few things, then it becomes much much easier. I think when you when it's always the, the totality of the world, people get alienated from because it becomes too overwhelming and they get drawn and they reproduce a lot of the stuff they see here. It's it's easier for people to to add and be creative and find alliances if they can work on something that is really specific, some some corner of it. And then when the pieces are put together, they can read about it and they can enjoy the, the whole fleshed out world. But but if it's just too open, it's it's it tends then to people will see whatever thing if if they're against capitalism or selfishness or whatever they will, they immediately jump on those on those features. Mm. And I'm fascinated by how you both talked about objects, about the role of having tangible objects as ways of helping people to access that. I wonder what when you are considering objects that you're going to include in this process, what. What are you looking for? What makes a good object for this kind of speculative uh, work? That's a really good question. Thank you. Um, Objects are often at the heart of our work at Superflux. So it could be anything that gives a glimpse of that world in some ways. It could be really broad. So, you know, in the past, we have created, you know, we think of these as as diegetic prototypes or archaeologies of the future or, you know, kind of the idea that I've traveled to a future and brought back something for you to see from that future as an object. And that narrative works really well as well. So in the past, we have been things like, this is air from the future. So we had these ministers inhale a super polluted air from the future. And that was deeply noxious and toxic. And that had a big influence. Or, you know, we have done things like we have created these spears that were made from the detritus of the Anthropocene. So from like discarded Arduino circuit boards and hand-whittled bamboo, these are these kind of spears that are used for foraging food in a world where climate change has altered completely how we eat and how supply chains work. We have created, you know, like I said, the genetic calculator was an artifact of the future that I mentioned before, where people were able to take a saliva sample, stick it in, it started glowing and producing all kinds of results about about their genetic data's value. So in each instance, what it does is that experience of touching, feeling, interacting with an artifact that has this very peculiar space where it's not completely unfamiliar. It's not an object that you may have never experienced before. It's not completely unfamiliar. There are a lot of form factors. There's a lot of kind of a lot of its affordances could be quite familiar, but it is its interaction, its position, its idea is very different from something you've experienced today. And that kind of space between completely strange and weird and familiar is a really great space to experiment because it allows people to hold on to some associations, but enough to then allow them to suspend disbelief to go into that world and see what it might feel like to live with this kind of object. Johannes, what's your what's your uh, sense in terms of choosing objects or designing objects? 
I think Anna puts it really nicely. The, the, the contrast with our work is often that we we make the objects strange. So the objects are not, I mean, the objects are very familiar. It could be a material, it could be like Lego or plastics or steel bottle and, and those things. And we, we talk about them as really familiar objects because they, be, they belong to an era that is no longer here. So of course it has that kind of distance and, and we deliberately create it. So the challenge for us is when we take this to new kinds of audiences. So we, we have recently made a material for uh, school children in Sweden. So it's uh, they do their own uh, museum of carbon ruins and the class collaborate and they put their objects there and they tell stories about it. But And we provided some of them, a lot of material for them, images and things. But things like uh, um, the bonus card for airline flights is, of course, a use, useless object for school children. They have never had one. They Maybe their dads had one. So we realized that quite a lot of our, our objects, they were created by us and people in our age who came to it. So now there are some different objects coming from the, the schools that have started to do their own ex- exhibition. So, so in that sense, the objects always has to resonate with a particular community. And, and if you would do it in, um, in your place in the world, you'll have objects that are probably particular to, to your place as well. So, so objects are always rooted in that specific context and the people around it. My last question is really that, that if there are people listening to this who do work already, which, you know, where they are trying to add in this tool of time travel and helping people to imagine different scenarios, what what advice would you give them? What would be, if you had some tips for people who are thinking, I'd like to bring this, I'd like to use this more with my group in school or in my activism or in the business I work with to really unlock. I'm reading um, Maria Mikaba's book at the moment, We Do This Till We Free Us. She says in there, we live in a system that has been locked into a false sense of inevitability, which I love. And if people are listening to this and they're inspired to use some of these tools to help unlock that false sense of inevitability. What what advice would you give them? What tips would you give them, Johannes? I always thought about this, the stuff that I do as, as, as methods. They are starting points. They create particular spaces of experimentation where particular conversations and dialogues can be held. So for me, they are not the end thing. It's just a starting point for invited people to have the kind of joint experience of a particular world. But then it's the kinds of dialogues that comes after, which is the center. So whether in the forms of a storytelling workshop or a particular reading or, or down, but whatever it is, the, these are not ends in themselves, but methods to create a particular space where we could think and talk about the world in, in new ways. Anna, what, what would your advice be to people who want to give this more of a go? I would say that what I have learned is that um, you end up stepping into spaces that you will feel very uncomfortable about. So you have to be prepared to experience discomfort because if you are going to go into different possible worlds, extreme scenarios, um, uh, if you are going to start extrapolating data points into a future, you will find yourself entering into the space of discomfort. And I would say, don't retreat from the ache that that might cause, but to stay with these multiple possibilities, because only if you stay with them, will you start to see connections between them. This will also require a lot of unlearning. So I think when we start practicing imagination, it means a lot of our education, which has over the years teaches you how to reduce 
your imaginative capabilities to function as an adult in society. We will need to unlearn many of that to almost engage in a childlike way because it's only then that we become open to the unknown and the weird and the provisional. And those are the spaces I think that are exciting. So as Donna Haraway says, I'd say, stay with the trouble. Beautiful. And it's kind of, it's uh, heartbreaking to think that, that we have an education system that has uh, reduced our imaginative capacity at the time when we really need it the most and the amount of work we now need to do to rebuild it. Wow. Thank you both so much. It's been a really, really fascinating conversation. And, and thank you so, so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having us. So thank you both to my guests. Thank you for listening and hopefully subscribing and to Ben Adicott for music and sound production. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.